0: Of Amos, chapter 5, verses 18 to 27, and chapter 9, verse 8. O to you who long for the day of the Lord, why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bird as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, peachy dark without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a sting to me, even though you bring me... Offering and offering? Even though you bring me burnt offering and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for the years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth, Yet I will not totally destroy the descendant of Jacob, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord.
1: So for those of you that have been with us, uh, we have been in a series uh, looking at who we are as a church. Uh, In particular, what we've been trying to do is we've been taking our vision statement, which is to know and show the love of Christ, and put some meat on those bones by trying to assess the ways we go about actually accomplishing that vision, and we've been doing so by taking a look at our core values. Uh, Now, this week we'll be looking at our fourth core value, which is that of mercy and justice. Let me read for you our statement, uh, which again can be found on our website. All of these core values can be found there. But let me read this for us. Mercy and justice. We are a church concerned with addressing both the tangible needs and struggles of our neighbors and the reasons... For those inequities. Now, there is a lot of pressing issues uh, with the church today. Uh, Many are worth considering and addressing. However, I believe that a church that rightly reflects the mercy and justice of God will be a church that is best positioned to make a lasting impact on people's lives, their communities. Uh, And ultimately, the nations and the world. That faithful gospel witness will always include upholding mercy, decrying justice, and will result in ensuring that all people, God's image bearers, are treated as such. And yet, too often, the church has consistently failed in this area. And when, you, when we look at the book of Amos, it's a prime example of what happens when the people of God fail in this area, when they lose sight of God's grace and they fall into perpetuating injustice. And what I want us to see today is the sobering warning in the book of Amos. But I also want us to see, of catch, to catch a vision of how we might actually be faithful. I want us to be able to see what kind of church God is calling us to be and how you and I are all part of making that happen. So to do that and to understand that, let's unpack what we see here in Amos 5 through the, through three lenses in particular. We need to see the condemnation here. We need to see the call here. And we need to see the hope that's here in this passage. All right, so first, The condemnation. I want to specifically look at verses 18 through 23. Let me give you some context on the book of Amos. Uh, The book is really one of the most striking books in the Bible with regards to justice. Uh, Amos was a prophet who lived after Israel and Judah had divided uh, into two kingdoms. uh, Before uh, Israel, you had the northern kingdom, uh, before Israel would be uh, taken into captivity by the Assyrians. Uh, And what's interesting is that during this time, Both Judah and Israel, these two nations, were in the midst of great economic and political prosperity. Uh, Their territories as kingdoms were growing, they had plenty in the land, and by all accounts, it seemed as though things were going really well. It seemed as though they were being blessed. However, in the midst of this prosperity, Amos begins to preach against Israel And the reason being is that though the nation was seemingly prospering, extravagance and corruption had become pervasive. And during these years, though Israel prospered, a powerful and wealthy upper class emerged who were exploiting the poor and perverting justice. There were huge disparities between the wealthy and the poor. The state was far more harsh Against the poor than the rich, and the poor were targeted as easy prey for profits. I wonder if any of that sounds familiar. When the powerful and affluent nations, it's interesting when we think about those kinds of nations, almost always power and affluence in this way are built on grave injustices. They are the foundation of the golden cities of these affluent places. And as a result, the judgment of God is upon Israel. And throughout the book, God makes clear that he will not allow their injustices to stand. He will not allow their greed and their apathy toward the poor to stand. And what's interesting, what's actually kind of terrifying about this book is the extent to which Israel was incredibly self-deceived. The, and their arrogance as a people blinded them from the indulgences, from the idolatry that had gripped them, all while believing that God was in some way pleased with them. I mean, it's important to know that prosperity and wealth and success are not necessarily signs of God's favor and blessing. In fact, sometimes worldly success could very be very well be the result of God giving people over to their depravities and their idolatries, ultimately, which lead to condemnation. Look at verse 18. This is God speaking. He says, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? It's interesting. The day of the Lord. Which is one of the major themes of the prophets, was a day to which Israel looked ahead, where God would bless his people and give them all he promised. It was a day in particular, though, where judgment would be brought against wicked nations and where God would save his people. But here, God is saying, Why do you look forward to that day? Because of your greed. Because of your apathy to the poor, this places you squarely in the path of my judgment. Why would you look forward to that day? For those who perpetuate the injustices found in Israel, the day of the Lord is darkness, not light, according to verse 20. They are looking ahead, desiring God's faithful promises, while at the same time, ignoring him and reveling in their wickedness. They, however, go even further. Look at verse 21 and 20, verse twenty-one through 23. There are these feasts, these offerings, this singing that's happening. What are they doing? They're worshiping God, all while ignoring the injustices that they perpetuate. All throughout these verses, God is revealing his disgust over their hypocrisy. I mean, for example, consider, consider this, and this is, of course, this isn't all printed, but all throughout the book of Amos, you've got God and Amos speaking things. And every time throughout the book, whenever Amos, or sorry, whenever God speaks, God's statements are always prefaced with, thus says the Lord. However, look at verses 18 through 21, right? You have in 18 through 21, you have Amos speaking, but then in verse 21, God begins to speak, without that preface. And the reason I'm drawing that out is because I heard one, one preacher note that it's almost as if God is so disgusted that he doesn't even announce himself. He just butts in and interrupts their worship to say, I despise your feasts. I reject your offerings. Get away with me with the noise of your songs. I mean, if I had to summarize the reasons for God's anger here in chapter 5, It would be, not only were they an unjust people, but they were mocking him by saying that they worship him all while simply serving themselves. Their affluence and their desire for political and economic gain, their refusal to acknowledge the injustice among them, their belief that God was somehow blessing them, all elicits God's anger. This reaction And what's interesting is that anger of God against injustice is not limited to just Amos 5. We actually see this over and over again, that God is angered when the poor and the needy are forsaken. For example, in Ezekiel 16, we're told that one of the main reasons that God brought judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah was, quote, they did not help the poor and needy. In Deuteronomy 25, God commands Israel to treat all people justly, for it goes on to say, for the Lord your God detests anyone who does not, anyone who, de- uh, who deals dishonorably. In Proverbs 6 and 17, God speaks of his hatred against injustice. In Matthew 25, Jesus says that those who do not care for the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger and the naked and the sick and those in prison, that they do not belong to him. Earlier in Matthew 21, the one time we see Jesus get aggressively angry is when he enters the the temple and flips the tables of the money changers in the temples because they were making money off the poor. And this is not isolated it's all throughout Scripture. And it's also not isolated to just the time of Scripture. I mean, if you know anything about our own history, and even things happening today, this condemnation ought to be striking. I mean, economic affluence, political dominance. You know, our economic dominance as a, as a nation was largely built as the result of grave injustices, We have the economic power that we have because we started our economic system with stolen land and stolen labor. I once heard someone say, if you are a business owner and you were given free real estate and free labor, you'd have to be a disaster to not make that successful, which is true. And we live in a time when if you are poor, you are more likely to be imprisoned because if you can pay for a good lawyer, You can get out. I mean, we could go on and on about the various ways that injustices just kind of exist among us, but let there be no uncertainty that a church that does not stand on the side of justice, upholding the weak and the powerless, will find themselves diametrically opposed to God himself. Let me stop there for a second because I do recognize... Uh, that for some, hearing me talk about the anger of God, uh, the hatred of God, uh, maybe you've immediately just kind of tuned me out. Because for some, God cannot be a God of anger. God cannot be a God that hates, because God is a God of love. However, I would argue that often when we think about hatred and anger, we tend to understand it through the lens of our sinful understanding of hatred and anger, which is often broken and selfish and lacks control. However, this is not the anger and hatred that we read about when reading about God in Scripture, because not all anger is wrong and not all hatred is evil. To hate that which is unjust or to be angry when the weak and the powerless are, are oppressed is the only proper response to such things. A God who does not get angry is also a God who cannot love. In fact, when it comes to injustice, a God who does not hate that injustice is a God who ultimately proves himself to be uncaring and unloving. I mean, we want a God who, in the end, refuses to allow injustices to stand. I mean, we want a God who—we uh, don't want a God, rather—who is apathetic to the plights of the most vulnerable among us. Rather, we want a God who is vehemently for justice and opposes injustice. And so, before we proceed. Any further. We must understand that God is not ambiguous on this issue, and therefore we as a church cannot be ambiguous. Mercy and justice are one of the biggest priorities for us because they're one of the biggest priorities for God. So there's a condemnation. But next, we need to take a look at the call to justice that God presents to us here. And in particular, I want to take a look at verse 24. Because all of this begs the question, how then do we go about engaging in mercy, in justice as a church? Because I realize that uh, many of us do not think think of ourselves as being unjust or as those who oppress the poor. Fair enough. I think we'd be hard-pressed to find people who uh, who would identify with the people here in the book of Amos uh, in Israel. Uh, But to that idea of us... Often uh, not considering ourselves to be part of it. I just I want to say two things. The first thing that I want to say is that there really are people who literally look like those found in the book of Amos. There are those who intentionally prey on the weak, the vulnerable, and the poor. There are those who enrich themselves by taking advantage of people. This happens in the church. This happens in the private sector. This happens in government. And it happens all over the place. You know, in the church, it is not that difficult to find certain ministries that are gravely unjust. As some who seek to enrich themselves by manipulating people, vulnerable people, it's a vile use of the gospel. In the private sector, Sometimes, often, in various systems that we are all part of, our healthcare system, our banking, and our lending practices, there are bad actors across the board who prey on the vulnerable with no compassion, no empathy, and the only thing they care about is the bottom line. In government, for example, there are aspects of our legal system that prove and show the bad actors that exist. You know, we as a culture, for example, have an obsession with incarceration. There are private prisons across this country where people are literally profiting off of the high rates of incarceration in our country. Now, granted, we are not Israel, but these kinds of grave injustices happen every single day. And we best believe that God is angered by those injustices when people are literally profiting in exorbitant ways by preying on the weak and the vulnerable. But the second thing that I'd want to say is that I think too often we let ourselves off the hook in regards to injustice. And I say that because I know that I do. And the reason why, uh, in particular, why I think that is actually found in verse 24, Uh, Verse 24 calls us to a very particular kind of justice. Let me reread it. It says this, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. A couple interesting things about that famous verse. First thing that's interesting is justice seems to be necessary and is presumed that it's meant to be sure, certain, and never failing. And these are the reasons why this passage was a famous passage and a favorite passage for people like Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights activist. MLK used to use this passage all the time, and I don't know that anyone could have used it in a more appropriate kind of way. I mean, as he was prophetically calling out a church who assumed themselves to be good before God, yet fundamentally rejected the justice of God, this passage, verse 24, is the perfect call to justice for that church. And he uses this passage, it's it's heartbreaking to know how perfectly his context fit the context of Amos. That there were churches who worshiped God, yet their worship was a stench before God as a result of their injustices. Now, our our view in our use of verse twenty-four, I think, is important. How can we go about engaging verse twenty-four in a way that honors God in this area of mercy and justice? Well, I want to understand that by taking a look at two words that are in there, specifically justice and righteousness. So, the Hebrew word for justice is mishpat. Uh, just bear with me for the next few moments. We're gonna get a little. We're gonna have a little Hebrew lesson. Okay, ready? Um, The Hebrew word for justice is mishpat, and the uh, the word righteousness is zedekah. Two different words. Now, it has been said that the biblical river of justice has two banks, mishpat and zedekah. And often throughout Scripture, you see these two words combined together when talking about justice. You see this in Genesis 18, Hosea 2, Jeremiah 22, To understand the difference between these two words, uh, let me give you some thoughts that were um, articulated by a rabbi and Jewish scholar, Jonathan Sachs. He said this of these two words. He said, The two words, zedekah and mishpat, signify different forms of justice. Mishpat means retributive justice or the rule of law. Zedekah, by contrast, refers to those who have more than they need and how they must share some of that surplus with those who have less. So just to summarize, Mishpat speaks of systems and structures and laws that keep the oppressed poor and the weak weak. Zedekah speaks about how we treat one another, the way that we attempt to care for one another on an interpersonal level. Now, the reason why I draw these out is for this reason. Uh, if you were uh, last year actually like exactly one year ago we had our formed for justice conference uh, and there at that conference um, Gabriel Salguero uh, who's a pastor spoke on two different approaches to justice and he drew out these two words and he made a really important point at this conference which by the way I would highly recommend um, checking out if you ever get a chance to some really amazing things um, from that conference but in that talk Gabriel expresses concern in modern evangelicalism by saying this, that there is plenty of zedekah in that we are, do, we are good at doing things usually like feeding the poor, clothing the naked, acts of kindness and mercy, treating one another with respect on an interpersonal level. But then he goes on to say that we have a real mishpat deficit, meaning we struggle to engage structures and systems that create the problems of injustice. And he refers to Archbishop Cormier, who said this, that when I give food to the poor, Zedekah, they call me a saint. When I ask why they are poor, they call me a communist. Meaning that we are generally good at treating people well and respectfully at an individual basis, but we tend to not be good at Asking the question, why a person is in that situation? And it's the why questions that can potentially be dangerous. And it's the why questions that so often cause us to have harsh reactions. For example, consider the things that we've already talked about already. I mean, why do we have in our own city an increase of homeless neighbors with mental disabilities? Why, do in our city, do we have an increase of the homeless population coming through domestic abuse? Why are people of color less likely to have quality health care, education, and jobs perspectives, but more likely to be incarcerated for crimes statistically committed at the same rate by those not of color? Why? Why in a time of unprecedented wealth do we still have children in our own nation and city going hungry? Why? See, the why are mishpat questions. Mishpat is used over 200 times in the Old Testament. It is a major theme of biblical justice, and I draw it out because I want us to see That while mercy ministry is good, addressing the tangible needs of those who struggle, of our neighbors, that is only one bank of this river. The other bank is the bank of Mishpat, which asks the question, why? And I recognize this is a robust call. It is a call to care for people course when they are in need and suffering, but it's also a call for us to be mindful and activated to engage in ways that make broader impact. When Christians do so, they make impacts that reverberate far beyond issues in the immediate. And so let me get a little practical with you for a second. Uh, For some, I think this call to mishpat might be a call to being at the seat of power, For some, God might call you to be in government, to be in law, to be in other places of influence where you can actually change the systems and the structures that exist. The civil rights movement, for example, had great successes on this front because there were people in power who literally changed laws. But most of us are not going to be at those seats of power or called to be at those seats of power. But it's important to know that we can also impact these mishpat kinds of questions. Because what we are able to do is we're able to make changes by living lives to the best of our ability that are countercultural to these injustices that may be pervasive. And this was actually the power and the lasting effect of the civil rights movement in our country. It was a movement that had real strength in People all over the country living in ways that challenged the injustices that were around them. Christians living in countercultural ways, conscious of the injustices that are around them, will in the long term make a lasting impact. Because when we are committed and we are conscious, when you see the times when you're called to move past Zedekah in Mishpat, you'll be able to do so. I think one of our problems, though, is that we are not good at considering the depths of injustices that are around us, and when we are confronted with those injustices, we have no framework for knowing how to engage. But I do believe that when we're committed to seeing, committed to knowing and recognizing, God will present those opportunities for us to engage well. Okay, that was a lot. Here's the problem, of course. Injustice existed before the time of Amos. Uh, it existed throughout the time of Israel. It has existed all throughout the New Testament church. Uh, it exists today. Injustice always seems to exist in the church, outside of the church. It exists in our neighborhoods, even inside of these walls, maybe. And the reason, being uh, the reason that this is. So often the problem, so often the reason that injustices perpetuate is because ultimately, like Israel, there are other things that become a greater priority for us than those that are around us or God himself. At the root of all of this, at the root of all injustice, is idolatry, always. There is always something That we love more than God himself, and as a result, that leads to injustice. We have seen that in the past, the present, and I feel confident we are going to see that into the future. So what then is our hope? Given all of that, what what can we cling to? Are we forever just to be condemned as a result of injustice? I would say no. No. In particular, I want to draw out, lastly, the hope by looking at chapter 9, verse 8, which is printed there in your bulletin. Of course, I didn't want to print out the whole thing, but at the very end of Amos, the book does not end in condemnation. Rather, though God promises that the city was going to be destroyed, in, verses, in verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 8, he also promises that he would not destroy, completely destroy, the descendants of Jacob. And he goes on to say that he will restore his people to bring them out of exile. And then later on in verse 12, he says that the nations would bear his name. In the midst of judgment, there is restoration and ultimate hope being presented to them. What is that ultimate hope? What was their hope? What is our hope? Well, it's important for us to know what God means by not destroying the descendants of Jacob. It's important for us to know what he means, that, his, that the nations would bear his name. Because what we know is something that Israel did not know. We know the substance of those promises. Because the ultimate descendant of Jacob, the one to whom everything points, would be Jesus Christ himself. Because he is the ultimate hope. He is that ultimate descendant of Jacob. And do you know why they were not completely destroyed? And why we are not completely destroyed? It is because of this descendant of Jacob who would accomplish true justice. For he was the only one who could accomplish that justice. And it would be his name that would be made known among the nations. In Matthew 12... Matthew quotes uh, a prophecy from Isaiah 42. Let me read this for you. Matthew's uh, the prophet Isaiah says, That a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. I mean, do you hear what that passage is saying? This passage, which is speaking of Jesus, says that Jesus brings justice through to victory. What was his victory? It is the way that God ultimately deals with injustices. By his people at the time of Amos and injustices that have occurred ever since, Jesus Christ took the condemnation that was rightly ours in order to quell the righteous wrath, that anger of God against injustice on the cross, justice was done, just not to us. Thanks be to God. Jesus came and was among us, that he experienced the brutality of injustice done, and he lives his life perfectly righteous, so that our lack of righteousness, our lack of justice, is not the final say as to whether or not we stand condemned before God, just as it was not the final say for Israel either. And the beauty of the work of Jesus is that he experienced the weight and the sorrow of this unjust, broken world. We serve a Savior who understands. Marsha Owens, who is an an activist and a community organizer, she put it this way, which, by the way, you can read in your uh, reflection quotes there in the beginning of your bulletin. But this is what she says about that idea. She said that Jesus spent a week in Jerusalem working for us, doing what we can't do, achieving our salvation. He spent three years in Galilee working with us, calling us to follow him and work alongside him. But before he ever got into working with and working for, he spent 30 years in Nazareth being with us, setting aside his plans and strategies and experiencing in his own body the exile and oppression. Jesus experienced exile and the oppression of this world, then on the cross he takes And upon himself, that injustice that has created a world of of oppression on the cross, he experiences exile so that we can be accepted and welcomed. And in his resurrection, the beauty of the end of the story is that we see his power to crush the head of injustice, for he proved his victory over it. This is his victory. This is our hope. And when we see what Jesus has done for us because of our injustice, it ought to make us a people who more ardently, passionately strive for justice. So let justice roll like a river, righteousness like a never-ending, failing stream. And may we be a people of Mishpat and Zedekah because our Savior was just and righteous for us. Let's pray.